Dear listeners, it's another Friday, so it must be another edition of The Learning Curve. And I might add, another week, another Democratic primary debate, leaving all of us wondering, when are we ever going to really talk about education? Well, I'll tell you (laughs) when. It's right now. And you do not have to be a wonk to love this week's edition, because we have the amazing Dr. Howard Fuller. Bob, how are you doing today? I'm great. Kara, nice to hear from you. I didn't watch the debate this time. I, I did watch uh, parts of the other three, but I finally just decided to be like, well, I'll see the I'll see the highlight reel, you know. You get the clips. You get the clips at and the now, end of the day. Yeah. And also, I just, I just keep waiting to be surprised to find out when we're going to talk something substantive about education. I mean, we sort of know what we're going to hear, but I, I'm just dying for somebody to surprise me. I'm, I'm waiting too, and waiting. Yeah, I mean, also, too, like the lower – uh, percentage yielding candidates at the moment. Do I really need to hear like long speeches from, or even just, you know, three minute answers from oh, Amy oh, Klobuchar? Like She's not going to be the nominee. Pardon? I know, but I like her. It's okay. We, I All still right. want to hear from those guys. Mr. Julian Castro, it's good stuff. All right, <laughs> listen, Bob, we've got some stories of the week to get to, right? Or stories of the day, stories of, I don't know, what day is it? Yeah, the week. But yeah, the stories of the week. Good yeah, ones here. that's good. Stories I like that of the week. Okay, so this first headline we've got here, major teachers union suffers lost following a 2018 Janus Supreme Court ruling. And let me tell you, so first of all, no surprise, but this out of this out of the Washington Examiner, isn't it, Bob? Yeah. This is uh, talking about the fact that you know, as expected, the two major teachers unions are reporting that they've lost um, those people basically who didn't want to be a part of the teachers unions, but were forced to pay fees anyway. So no big surprise there. And I would say this is what the Janus decision was all about, right? You can't compel people to pay for something that they don't actually want to be a part of, even if they're getting the benefits of collective bargaining agreements. And I say a couple things to this. I say, number one, now for unions to survive, they really have to show what they're worth. And so, um, you know, we can't, you can, you can criticize the AFT and the NEA for many things, especially on this podcast, I would say. But one thing you, you have to give them is these folks have strategy. So I think that they were thinking about Janice obviously long and hard before the decision came down. And we've seen, I'll point out across the nation, a wave of charter school unionizations. So let's not think that that wasn't planned long before this decision came down. They knew that they needed to make a move to unionize more schools and as they have actually according to this article so they've lost those folks who didn't want to be a part of the union but they've gained some schools and they've gained that way some union members but now they really have to show their worth and one of the things that's really interesting i think to watch is as they successfully or maybe some charter schools will walk it back as they convince these schools to unionize um, especially charter schools which as we know um, in most places even if they're equally funded in terms of per pupil expenditure, they're not really equally funded because they have to pay for their own facilities, which means they have to pay their teachers less. It's really hard, therefore, to convince folks, hey, join this union and give me 
money on top of the money that you already don't really have to spend, right? <laughs> so I think that they've got a little thinking to do. What do you have to say about this article, Bob? Well, the, the unions, of course, love messaging all kinds of things that have nothing to do with schools. But uh, on this, the numbers I saw were AFT. And for those who don't know, the American Federation for Teachers represents mostly the urban school districts, the big city school districts like New York, Chicago. The NEA is the other big teachers union that represents teachers mostly everywhere else, suburban, rural areas. Those are all NEA, uh, tend to be NEA uh, districts. And so these numbers are the AFT big city union districts. And, 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 and what we learned was that there was a drop of 4% in the teachers union membership. And yet they had 8,000 more AFT members. So yes, this says when the whole pie grows, you can represent both a smaller percentage and yet a larger raw number of teachers. And that's what we're, we're seeing uh, with, with the AFT. But the other thing is that the, I, I thought was interesting, they said agency fee payers went from 85,000 to 3,000. Now, age, for those who don't know that, agency fee payers was the term for people who weren't union members, but were required to pay some 80 to 90 percent of the union dues anyway, a vestige of the old 1970s Abood SCOTUS decision that the Janus decision eliminated. It's said you can quit the union, but you still got to pay most of the dues. Well, if you're thinking what I was thinking, you're like, why are there even 3,000 agency fee payers left? That's because the Janus decision only applied to public school teachers that are now allowed to fully quit union. That unions. That means there sector. are still teachers in unionized non-public schools, and they have not been uh, Janist, if you will. So they still are paying these agency fees. You really just verbed it, didn't you, Bob? You turned that into a verb. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I would just say, uh, finally, if, if for those listener, gentle listeners who are dismayed that the only unioniza- that the unionization drop was only four percent, just remember this was just the first year. I've always thought it will take several years for teachers to realize that, hey, I'll get a free $1,000 raise and miss out on nothing by quitting the union, Uh, especially if you look at the 2018 Red for Ed strikes that were mostly, you know, statewide strikes in West Virginia, Oklahoma, mostly not organized by the unions, but by the teachers organically through Facebook and stuff like that. And so, uh, yes, I think for year number one, I'm not surprised it's only 4%. I predict larger decreases in, in future subsequent years. Yeah, again, larger decreases, but we should also um, keep an eye. Like I said, uh, the unions are known for strategy. It's 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 a strong point for them, so we'll see what they come up with next, right? Next story of the day, right here out of Massachusetts. Now, this one, I have to say, uh, my own Pioneer Institute had a jump on this story with a paper that was published uh, a long ways back. But the headline here from the Boston Globe, Massachusetts public schools violated law by denying Catholic Jewish schools aid for special education, U.S. officials say. So I think if I remember correctly, Bob, you brought this up last week that really the biggest air quotes voucher program we have in this country is IDEA, which means the federal law that says that um, students are entitled to a, an appro- a free and appropriate education and some students with special educational needs, if the district cannot meet their needs, then the district is obliged to provide them with the, the money that they need for an out of district placement. And for many kids with special needs, that 
that means private schools. Now, so what has been happening here in Massachusetts is that a bunch of local districts have simply not been paying. The kids have been attending these private schools, but the districts have not, in fact, been sending the tuition that the private schools are due. Now, the Massachusetts uh, Department of Education was asked to investigate this. Uh, They came back having quite frankly, not done their job, according to this article. And um, the districts are saying, oh, we were just really confused about what was supposed to happen here. Well, the U.S. Department of Education has come back. Um, they were asked, you know, the the Catholic, Jewish, and private schools, other private schools asked for the U.S. DOE to weigh in. And consequently, according to the Globe, and I'm quoting here, local districts and the state could wind up owing private schools millions in services that they failed to provide over the past five years. Yeah, 120 so, million. That was the number from the litigants. 120 million dollars. You know, and here's the thing. It's this just, it, these are kids we're talking about here. So district confusion aside, lack of state oversight aside, these are kids. These are parents that are fighting for the right services for their kids. And quite frankly, the private schools that are providing kids these services happen to be the very same schools, Catholic schools especially, that are closing across the nation because one of their models of schooling is, we'll provide it to you anyway, even if you can't afford it, because we really believe that you deserve a good education. What do you think about this one, Bob? Yeah, so this, this is another one where I'll say there's the myth and the truth. The myth is that the practices of special needs education are, are so clearly studied and delineated and codified and understood that there's this some sort of provable, definable, objective truth. You know, we can we uh, the, a student, they are either one of these 11 categories, autistic, emotional disturbance, hearing impairments, intellectual disability, orthopedic impairments what they have this list right and that and that they and that we uh, we can determine for sure with these experts and all their jargon whether kids are being adequately educated the truth is that amidst all the complex jargon there are countless cases where dueling experts won't agree and that if you they're really there are millions of dollars at stake, as we just said, and, and that uh, it's amazing how the experienced professional opinions can be bent to conform to the interests of which person's hiring that expert. And so, uh, look, I uh, what I would love to to see is is these IDEA special needs private school placement disputes in states. Uh, you know, where there's special needs ESAs and stuff like that. I'm waiting to, to see, have someone uh, look at whether there was a drop in lawsuits over special needs private school placement when states introduced school choice programs. So states like Ohio or Arizona or Florida have year after year for many years now have had vouchers for special needs kids or ESAs just for special needs kids. Well, did the IDEA lawsuits drop this federal uh, school choice special needs lawsuit, the special needs private placement lawsuits, did they drop as soon as the special needs voucher programs launched in these states? Did it have an impact? Some people might say, oh, I'm crazy because these are apples and oranges, that the voucher you know, amounts tend to be five to $10,000 per kid, whereas a lot of these IDEA-based uh, special needs placements are, you know, can be like $50,000 a year They're per kid. They're expensive. Right. Sure. So, so yeah. some would say, oh, this is uh, ridiculous to compare these two things. Okay. I want to see. I have a feeling that a lot of parents uh, will would take a voucher or ESA for their special needs child if they don't have to fight and hire consultants and go to court and all this and all this uh, acrimony is not needed. If they could just quietly sign up, 
for a, you know, go to a, go to a school like a Catholic or Jewish school, as it mentioned in the story, and um, and and many would probably not file the lawsuit they would otherwise file if there were a special needs private school choice program in their state. You know, Bob, some might call you crazy, but on that one, I'm not going to call you crazy. So let's <laughs> put the call out to all of our wonky listeners. Who wants to do that study? It yeah. should be a pretty simple evaluation. Let's get let's get on that. Let's get it going. If someone right. counts, Are if someone counts, that? yeah, counts the number of IEDA uh, court cases in a state every year. I don't know if anyone's counting that or not. I don't know if there's no a way to count. No parent wants to go to court. We can say that for right. sure. No school district should want to either for that case for that in that uh, sense. Okay, third story of the day. Here we. We go. You ready, folks? All Students right. at Virginia School learn to acknowledge their privilege in combating intolerance. So this is from the Washington Post. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm sure, Bob, that you're going to give us a little bit more of a, some colorful commentary and a little bit more <laughs> about this story. But but this is generally, this is a story about um, one school, and perhaps we could say a new trend in some schools, to educate children about their positionality, right? So um, what is it that maybe you have or you experience as a result of where you were born or or family you were born into, or privilege. simply who you are in the society. Yeah, your privilege in comparison to others with an emphasis on what are those experiences of people who we often, those who are in the quote unquote dominant society, or maybe, you know, seen as more mainstream, what are the experiences of the quote unquote, the other? So you're probably not going to be surprised, my friend, that I, I kind of like this. I like this on a couple levels. I like this on a couple levels because number one, I think that part of what this does, if done well, is that it can ask students to engage in rigorous thinking. Now, I'm thinking about older students here and to be reflective, something that too often we do not ask students to do in school. And I think that this kind of exercise, it can even, it can be about higher order thinking, critical thinking. And I do think underneath it is very, very good intent. I also think that it is incumbent upon schools, and we know no school is neutral, no form of education is neutral. We can say that again and again, public schools included. But it is incumbent upon schools as the culture shifts to teach about power structures and who benefits from power structures and who doesn't. And this isn't about making kids who are disempowered in some way feel even more disempowered, but it's about all kids knowing what they have and knowing what they're up against. So, so here's what, I don't wanna get on a rant here, Kara. I'm for the discussion and eradication of stupid stereotypes about groups of people, racial, religious, gender, all that stuff. You know, talking about dumb stereotypes is healthy. I'm all that's all good. But I would also just sort of say that there is a certain uh, kind of a social justice warrior movement, in my view, to identify uh, that, that there are only certain kinds of privilege that we are supposed to discuss. So white, primarily, we can throw in male and straight, like I did. So terms like toxic masculinity get thrown out. And it, you know, it's often framed as white, straight, male, bad. You know, privilege is guilt. And my feeling about that is that aren't there all kinds of privileges they're leaving out? A, a white, straight male child who's homeless doesn't feel very privileged, I would say, because they're freezing and starving every night. Or, you know, doesn't that prove there's something called a have a home privilege? What about the privilege of being healthy, regardless of your race, gender, sexual orientation, instead of having 
muscular dystrophy or childhood leukemia. Isn't that a privilege? The, the truth is I've seen dirt level poverty in some of the world's poorest countries and not being born in those places is a privilege probably everyone listening to these words was given. So my problems with this SJW version of this narrative is that they've anointed themselves as the official arbiters of the approved list of privileges that public schools are supposed to discuss to be woke while, when I'm cool with that, but while blithely censuring all kinds of other profound privileges as not fitting their narrow policy agenda. And I feel that kind of, you know, it, it feels like lecturing, virtue signaling. It, it's, it feels condescending to me to say you're not, you know, it's just these certain privileges that matter and all kinds of other ones, you know, uh, don't. All of that said, I think I think that it is time to move on because I feel like we've got a guest coming up that is going to blow everyone's socks off. We've got Dr. Okay. Howard Fuller. All right, folks, Dr. Howard Fuller is a distinguished professor of education and director of the Institute for the Transmi Transformation of Learning at Marquette University. Dr. Fuller has many years in public service and in education, including superintendent of the Milwaukee Public Schools. He's also the author of the great book, No Struggle, No Progress, From Black Power to Education Reform, what I would consider required reading for everyone listening Absolutely to these words required. right now and in the education reform uh, movement. Uh, Dr. Howard Fuller, thank you for appearing on the Learning Curve podcast. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Thanks for that great plug for my book, too. <laughs> I really appreciate it. It's, it's finally on audio. So. Oh, okay. Did you do yeah. the audio recording? Yeah, I read it myself. It, it, okay. took, it took seven months of negotiation with Amazon, but uh, it's finally on. Well, you have a great voice. I would have been angry if someone else read it. So that's no, I read it. <laughs> yeah, we would have been disappointed. So my Twitter feed found itself pushing out a video of one Howard Fuller this week from the state of Ohio, there to talk about the Democrats who are running for president. Um, so, Howard, what did? Why did you go to Ohio, and what did you say when you were there? Well, uh, this this all started uh, when uh, Bernie Sanders decided to come out against charter schools um, sometime, like, I think it was early July or late June or something. So Steve Perry and I uh, spoke at the National Conference of Public Charter Schools, along with uh, uh, Sharif L. Mackey, and we did a panel on our friends are afraid to fight. And so after that, panel, Steve and I decided to convene a call of uh, black and brown charter leaders from around the country. And the purpose of the call was to say, look, we can't just sit here and allow people to just browbeat us and there's no response. So we convened a call on, uh, I think it was July 6th. And um, there was probably about 25 uh, black and brown uh, leaders in the charter space. And, you know, I told people, don't come to the call just to discuss what a problem this is, but come to the call with very specific ideas about how we might push back. And that's what people did. And, you know, I put it all together into a document, you know, with different categories, uh, sent it back out. And then on the 29th of July, we had a call to go over those suggestions and decide on a course of action. 
uh, Roland Martin was on this call. He wasn't on the one on July 6th. And he came up with the notion that we needed to send a shot over the bow to these Democratic candidates that black and brown people were concerned about their efforts to uh, eliminate self-determination for our families, our ability to choose an educational environment for our children, charter schools being one. So we decided to demonstrate at the uh, site of the presidential debate uh, in Houston. And so we had a rally and then we demonstrated outside of the site. Um, and then last night or all day yesterday, really, uh, we were at the presidential debate in Westerville, uh, Ohio. And um, once again, um, you know, we demonstrated uh, in the free speech section of the campus, uh, the college campus that the debate was held on. But we also, I don't know, I think I got over there on campus about 5 a.m. But from about eight o'clock to four o'clock, we were on uh, state and Maine, along with Trump people, uh, People were there who believe in, uh, you know, open carry, you know, Yang people, Elizabeth Warren people, Bernie Sanders people, all these people. But we were there, you know, to make the point that there is a charter school community out here that cares and we intend to fight back. So there's this free speech section of the union. Remember that they corralled you into some sort of narrow, faraway location yeah, that's, because that's what that, they, is that's is that after what universities were founded to do? Like, let's limit <laughs> free speech to this block of you know over here. Well, he's, yeah. well, well, you want the free speech area when they're trying area. to protect candidates from onlookers, Bob. I don't know if that's uh, if it's always the words. free speech section. I've got Dr. Fuller. Can we? Dig in for a minute to this, uh, the fact that here you are um, trying to convince candidates in a Democratic primary debate that charter schools, and we're not even talking school choice generally, as in private school right. choice, which you also know a ton about, <laughs> right. charter schools um, are a good thing for kids and that charter schools have benefited communities of color disproportionately. When this used to be um, when this used to be a bipartisan issue, charter schools more specifically. I mean, you yes. know, arguably President Obama did more for charter schools um, than anybody in recent memory. Where where did this go wrong? Where where how did this become such a partisan um, topic? Can you can you locate a moment? Can you locate a thing that that I, got us here? I don't know, I don't know if I can locate a moment. Um, I think you know going back since I've been on all sides of this, I mean by all sides, all of parent choice, not just charters. So the voucher part of this was always uh, contentious, but for a number of Democrats who understood that there needed to be change, charter schools provided uh, a public school option for them. And so there was, you know, as you said, bipartisan support for it. I think somehow because in many of the states, frankly, um, it was Republicans who were taking the lead uh, on choice issues, including charters at some point. And I'm not sure um, when the so-called progressives decided that 
if you were going to be a progressive, you had to come out against all forms of parent choice, frankly, including charter schools. I think, frankly, the driving force for that are teacher unions. And because teacher unions, even though Shanker initially came up with the idea, teacher unions have, for the most part, been universally opposed to charter schools. So I think the Democratic Party and the so-called progressives uh, have decided that, um, you know, they have to be against charters, which is really interesting because, I mean, I just saw a poll that I think the Democrats for Education Reform did where something like 81 percent of, I don't know if it was Democrats generally or black and brown Democratic uh, people, you know, favor charter schools. So it's kind of a, a, a weird phenomenon <laughs> that we're facing, and I'm not quite sure how to uh, pinpoint when it occurred. Yeah, and I think you might be right here. And it's also this phenomenon of 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 candidates and politicians sort of ignoring what's right in front of their face, such as you <laughs> protesting. <laughs> well, no, I think there's a, a difference of opinion about what constitutes their base. Um, so one of the things I've been explaining to people is that Hillary Clinton had the support of the teachers union and still lost. And I think you all saw the data down in Florida. I, I've never seen it and never been able to determine whether or not it was accurate. It was, it was women, moms of color, I think, that turned yes. that vote. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, because of Gillum's uh, uh, wanting to end the scholarship program. I've, I've never seen the, the data itself and don't know how accurate it is, but I do know that the Democrats who continue to oppose the self-determination of black and brown families um, are once again going to be in danger of, of losing. I mean, not only because of their ineptness, but also because they are choosing a fight that I don't think they ought to be in, frankly. Uh, Howard, I wanted to ask about the, this, uh, you know, uh, connection that is in very indirect in presidential voting. Very few people cast their vote for president based on education policies of the candidate. And yet the money from unions to presidential candidates is a very di direct and real connection. So if you're a candidate, particularly if you're a Democrat, you're saying, OK, well, I can say negative things about school choice and charter schools. And no one's really going to vote against me for that because they don't vote based on that in a presidential election. But I'll get the money from the union. That will be a very direct connection. So their their incentive is almost to trash charter schools and school choice as much as the unions want because there's only upside. Well, I, I, th I think your analysis is is correct. Robert. I mean, I mean, I do think that that is the political calculus that they're making, um, but. The reality of it is that the presidential election is not going to be decided by the popular vote. It's going to be decided by the Electoral College vote. And so last time around, Hillary Clinton lost Wisconsin by 22,680 votes, I think. And I did an analysis because I've been studying elections for the last 20 years. And in the wards in Milwaukee that were 50% or more black, she got like 38,600 and less votes than Obama. And so I, I think the, the, the political calculus that you laid out is the right one or is right in terms of, the, I think that that's how they're seeing it. But I don't know 
if it totally operates that way. And it may not be that people are going to vote only about education, but you've got the problem of what is it that's going to make people come out to vote? Um, and while some of it is clearly going to be an anti-Trump sentiment, there's still going to have to be a certain amount of getting people out to vote. And people like me who, if I wasn't now organizing uh, against these Democrats, I'd be doing a different type of organizing to get out the vote. So you may be right, and their political calculus may turn out to be the one that works, but it may not. And Dr. Philly, you mentioned uh, Milwaukee, and I'd like to go there for a second. So um, in, with great thanks to you, the nation's first voucher program in Milwaukee. But now in Wisconsin, um, you've got a governor who does not favor school choice pretty much in, in any form. Correct me if I'm wrong. And um, the the voucher program itself was the topic of some heated critique and debate even this past year, though, I mean, um, you know, thankfully, a big save there. But how can you describe a little bit what's going on in your home state of Wisconsin, what you're thinking about the politics there? And I'm really curious to know, in places like Milwaukee, um, and then we might think about even states that have a great deal of choice, like Florida, which you already mentioned, is there sort of a critical tipping point at which enough parents have choice so that politicians just don't touch it anymore? Do you think there's any way to sort of safeguard parental choice? Uh, you know, you asked me a lot of questions there. Let me, let me <laughs> I'm sorry. Bad <laughs> no, teacher. Okay. I just want to make sure I try to answer them, right? Um, I, first of all, I, I, I don't believe that there is any tipping point, frankly. I, I think that what you're seeing with the attacks on charter schools, for example, uh, you, you know, people are clearly trying to, if not eliminate it, or eliminate that as an option, they're certainly weakening it. So you're seeing laws being passed and proposed for moratoriums, uh, limiting the amount of money. I think there was a proposal in Michigan uh, just recently to, to to cut the level of funding for charter schools. Yes. So I, I, I would say that, you know, years and years ago, Susan Mitchell and I, you know, talked about that, that we thought we'd be at a critical point where uh, people just wouldn't touch it. I don't think that that's true. I think if you go back to the political calculus that Bob mentioned, that I, I do honestly think that people still feel that these programs are vulnerable, even though there's large numbers of people who are in them. Uh, but the, the point is, a lot of those people who are in them are poor people. Uh, and neither of the parties, frankly, really have any agenda or concern about addressing the needs of, of, of poor people in this country. Um, so I, I just think they're always going to be vulnerable. But at the same time, if you look at Wisconsin, for example, you know, there are now more than 250 schools uh, in, in the statewide program. Uh, so there's about 9,750 kids. Uh, there's a lot of capacity yet around the state. Uh, the Milwaukee Prone Choice Program probably has close to about 30,000 kids in them. But when you start looking at places like Beloit and Green Bay and Madison and Eau Claire and places like that, um, the, the, the potential will be that the statewide program at some point in the next four to five years um, you know, may be larger 
than the Milwaukee Pro-Choice Program. Now, all of that, of course, depends upon uh, the election. And because at this point in Wisconsin, the people who are protecting the voucher program in particular, but to a certain extent, charters are Republicans. Although there are Democrats from the city of Milwaukee who are now supportive of parent choice programs, they weren't in the past. But, you know, we do have a base of support in Milwaukee. So, I don't, you know, what I, I just don't really know what is going to happen. And I, I think that those of us who are sitting back predicting one way or the other, I don't know that we actually know what is going to happen. What I do know is that we need to be organizing ourselves to fight back in whatever ways are available to us. And I think it's, it's a big mistake for people to think that this is a time to be quiet and just hope that maybe they won't see us or it won't be that big of a deal. Because for the main constituency, or one of the main constituencies in the teacher union, uh, in the Democratic Party, the teachers union, it is a big deal. So again, I, I feel that this is the time to organize. I mean, one of the things that we're learning in the, the, the two actions that we've taken is that the charter school people really don't have an army after all of these years. And to some extent, um, it's sure, because- uh, this as a way to address despair, pardon? No, just to say, to some extent, I think it's because a lot of the people who are currently in the movement, the younger generation, they didn't have to fight for it to happen. And so they kind of feel like it'll always be here. And so we really have a whole generation of people who have no idea about how to fight, why to fight, and the fact that you will at some point have to fight. You, I noticed from your amazing Twitter feed that you spend a lot of time in schools. You spend a lot of time with kids. You spend a lot of time. What's the coolest thing you've seen in a school recently? Well, you know, actually, I spend, I spend a lot of time in, in our school. Um, and as you may know, like they named the school after me this year. So um, Milwaukee Collegiate Very cool. Academy is now Dr. Howard Fuller Collegiate Academy. Congratulations. So, uh, yeah, this is, a, this is a great honor. It's kind of weird, but um, so the coolest thing for me like lately was uh, last Thursday night or a week ago, can't remember now, we, we had our first induction, our, our first class inducted into the uh, National Honor Society. And it was really cool to see these kids and to see the families come out, you know, mothers and grandmothers and cousins and aunts and uncles and, you know, fathers. I mean, it was it was really a cool event, right? And 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 to have uh, these kids be recognized for excellence and to have families there, because it's when I was able to talk to them, because there's a, a lot of violence going on in Milwaukee right now, a lot of things that are happening. And what we were able to talk about was that what was happening in that room and the recognition of those scholars and uh, the honor and the hard work that was going on there, that we need to let that define us and not the negative things that are happening in our community. So to be able to like bring that message in that room uh, was really a cool thing. 
Thank you so very much, Dr. Fuller, for joining oh, us sure. this week. It's it's just an honor to have you with us. And, um, you know, and I'm also left thinking, wow, if um, if anybody can predict the future of this movement, it's got to be you. So, so we're all waiting. Thank you so much for your commitment to the movement and for keeping us all informed and and, and, and for keeping and for moving us all forward because I think of that as one of your primary um, it's one of the one of the best things you do in this space is that you remind us all that there is never a time for complacency. So um, and I'll remind our listeners that they should absolutely follow you on Twitter at, at Howard L. Fuller um, because it's just a great Twitter feed and and I, I do love it when you tweet about schools and kids too, in the midst of everything else. Thank you, Dr. Fuller, and we hope to have you back. Okay, have a great day. Thank you. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. The commentary from the week from the great Carrie McDonald of FEE, Foundation for Economic Education, The and here's the title. The strongest support for school vouchers comes from lower-income families. And this is a a survey, basically, that was done uh, proving that low-income Americans and those with only high school diplomas were highly supportive of K-12 private school vouchers. And that support dwindled among those with higher incomes and college degrees. Basically, the more money you make, the less need you see for additional educational options, um, you know, no surprise, probably listeners here on on this, but uh, I don't think you're uh, hearing that kind of thing at the presidential primary debates from Democrats at this time. Okay, and that brings us to our tweet of the week from Ron Mattis at Redefine Ed, a fine publication. He says, the Miami-Dade School District chose to surf the tsunami of choice instead of trying to stop it. Its results and approach deserve a bigger spotlight. This, I think, a testament to what's happening in places where, you know, we talked about this idea of, is there a tipping point for school choice with Dr. Howard Fuller? And he says he doesn't doesn't think so. He's not quite sure. But we certainly have examples of places, um, I would say like for example, San Antonio, right? And Miami-Dade being one of saying, you know what? Um, We don't have to have this happen to us. We can embrace this. We can do it all together. And all you have to do is look, well, anywhere in Florida, really, Miami-Dade included to see the results. So this one brings me a lot of pleasure because I feel that it's about the idea of um, traditional districts or what some of us would call the status quo coming together to say, you know what? Let's go with this change. Let's see what happens. It might actually be good for all of us. And next week on the Learning Curve podcast, the great Andrew Campanella, president of National School Choice Week, will be joining us. And he has a brand new book out called The School Choice Roadmap. And we will look forward to seeing our friend Andrew Campanella. And But that's all the time we have for now. And thanks, Kara. Thank you, Bob. Always nice to be with you. See you all next right. week. Well, I've- hear you next week. Yeah, well, here are you next week, and I'm only mildly resentful that at the time of this recording, the New England Patriots are 6-0 and with the best record in the NFL. So hopefully— I mean, surprise, surprise. Change, <laughs> hopefully we'll see a change on that soon. We'll see you next week, everybody. Don't hold your breath. See you next week, Bob. Take care. Yeah.